Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the word of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned us, and we ask that you would give us understanding now that we may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see us and rejoice because we have hoped in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to consider this in light of Lord's Day 30 that we've already read as our, uh, call, or as our uh, confession of faith. So we want to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to begin our reading at verse um, 17. Verse 17, and we'll read through uh, verse 34. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 34, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. But the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us. We've been continuing our series through the catechism. We've been thinking about the Lord's Supper. We've pointed out that the catechism has a certain pattern that it likes to employ in the teaching um, of the Lord's Supper, that it, the sacraments in general, that first they gives the general definitions and then answers some questions about um, how we are to think of the sacraments. Um, question 80 asks a very important question, particularly important for people who are coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. What's the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Pope's Mass? Uh, I like the old way that that question was stated because it kind of betrays where the answer is going. Um, we're comparing the Lord's Supper and the Pope's Mass. 
Um, it prejudices, prejudices the question before it even starts to answer it, doesn't it? Um, what's wrong with the Pope's Mass? Well, we talked a little bit about the Roman Catholic doctrine, and um, I don't want to spend as much time on question 80. Maybe next time we come through the catechism, we can think about that. Um, I'd like to talk more about the other clarification that the catechism gives in talking about who ought to come to the Lord's table. Um, in question 75, we acknowledge that Christ has commanded me and all believers to come to the Lord's table. And so it's right and proper to ask the question, who belongs at the Lord's table? As the, Lord table, as the Lord's table is this recognition of what God has promised in the gospel and represented to his people, that just as surely as you see the bread broken and you see the poured out cup, so surely was Christ's body broken for you on the cross and his blood poured out as a remission for sins. And as surely as you take from the hand of the one who ministers the bread and the wine and eat and drink them, so surely does the blood and, spirit of, the blood and body of Christ nourish us to life eternal. Those are important truths that are being taught there. And so who belongs at that table is an important question. Who ought to come? And the Apostle Paul is dealing with an improper eating as he's writing to the, to the Corinthian church. Um, now they have severe problems with how they are administering the Lord's Supper. So severe that Paul has to say to them, whatever it is that you think you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're doing. Um, and he gives very specific instructions that help us to understand who ought to come to the table of the Lord. That there are those who should come and there are those who should not come. And that's what we want to think about this evening together. Who should come to the table of the Lord and who should not come to the table of the Lord? And to see the important teaching that God gives us in his word. So question 81 deals with that, that important question. Who should come to the table of the Lord? Um, and it's a very important answer that we read. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Uh, Paul calls on the people in Corinth, and all of God's people are called on by the Holy Spirit to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. Uh, there's always a self-examination that ought to go on for God's people, that we are to examine ourselves before approaching the table. Um, and that's a very clear teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, that self-examination only does you any good if you know what you're looking for, right? If it's an intelligent self-examination. Um, and we know what it is to examine yourself and not really know what you're looking for and end up in a bad place. So if you get a cold and you go on WebMD and try to look at what you're suffering with, you can convince yourself that you're, you have Ebola um, because you don't really understand symptoms and how they work and your examination is not so great, um, right? You need someone who knows what they're doing. You have to be able to examine yourself intelligently. And so when the Apostle Paul says we're to examine ourselves, the scriptures tell us clearly what we're to examine ourselves looking for how we are to examine ourselves so that we can use the supper of our Lord to our comfort. And this catechism question beautifully summarizes what Scripture teaches and says, what are we to examine ourselves? How are we to examine ourselves? What are we looking for? Um, and, and the first question we're looking for in our lives as we examine ourselves is, am I a repentant sinner? Am I a repentant sinner? 
Um, hopefully you can never look at your life and not acknowledge that you are a sinner um, because John tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. Um, we are sinners, but the question that we're examining is, am I sorry for my sin? Do I have that godly sorrow over my sin that only God's people experience? Um, and that's what we're looking for. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin. Repentance involves knowing your sin, being enlivened and enlightened by the Holy Spirit so that you can see your sin for what it is. Right? It's one of the, the difficulties that people have when they are still in darkness, that they've not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They have a darkened mind and they don't understand their own sinfulness. And one of, the, one of the glories of what God does for us in renewing us at, by the Holy Spirit, renewing us after the image of Christ, it gives us minds that actually work, that, that see things as they are, that sees sin and acknowledges sin for what it is. Um, not just something that's wrong in and of itself, but something that is an offense against a holy God. Because the enlightened, enlivened mind, having understood truly who God is, that he is a gracious God and a great God and a God who provides for his people, when we come to understand who God is and who we are, then we sorrow over our sins, not just because we're doing things that are wrong or things that are damaging to ourselves, as sin often is, damaging to us, but as primarily something that offends the God we love. That's why the scriptures tell us that true repentance involves a godly sorrowing over sin. That we're sorry we've done these things because we know that God hates them. And so it's to know sin and to be able to sorrow over sin the way we see scripture sorrowing over sin. We, we see examples of the way David sorrowed over his sin. Um, we can think of Psalm 51 verses 2 and 3. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See those elements of knowing what sin is and sorrowing over it? Um, or Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, that's someone who knows their sin and knows the sorrowing over it for the way it has ripped him from fellowship with God. Um, we can see that in the Apostle Peter when he meets the Lord in Luke chapter 5. He's immediately confronted with Christ's holiness and his sinfulness. You remember that first meeting as Luke records it. What does Peter say to Jesus? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Or that, that's someone who knows his sin. Or we can think of the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When we come to the Lord's table, do we come as repentant sinners? Do we come as people who know ourselves to be sinners and who are truly sorry for our sins, sorry because they are offenses against the holy God? Um, that's what we're looking for 
um, in our sin. But of course, we're not just asking that question, and we don't want to wallow in the sorrow of our sin. We want to ask the next question, which is, am I a redeemed sinner? Do I understand that as much as I know my sin and sorrow over my sin, my sins have been pardoned? That there is a Savior who saves us from our sins, who delivers us from the wrath of God, that we don't stand condemned any longer in our sin because our Lord Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. Do we understand that wonderful gospel truth that Christ came into the world to die for sinners? And because he's offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross and held himself out to all who will receive him by faith that we have pardon for our sins. Um, And I like how the catechism puts it, right? Not just pardon for our sins, past tense, but also remedy for our remaining weakness. Do we believe that we're redeemed sinners, not just pardoned for the sins that we've committed, but that our remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ? That's why it's so important in our communion forms when we read those things that we say, we're looking for that truth. Do you believe that you're a repentant sinner? And we'll go on to say, do you desire to live a godly life? But we always come back and say, now this supper is not for the strong, it's for the weak. It's not for the people who are doing well. It's for the people who are not doing well. It's for the people who are weak, who still have a lot of infirmity who still have a great weakness of faith, a great weakness of the Christian life. We're not meant to come to the Lord's table to testify how strong we are. But we come in weakness to testify to just how much Christ is a Savior and a a Redeemer from sin and weakness. That there's strength there in our Lord. And that strength is for the redeemed who trust Him in faith. And we always need to have that second part of the examination go on. Not just am I sorry for my sins, but am I trusting in my Savior? Am I trusting that Jesus alone is enough to pardon my iniquity and to cover my weakness? Is he enough? Um, That's also what we need to understand as we come to the table of the Lord, that we are sinners, but that he is a Savior. And that we're forgiven because of what he's done. We need to hear that assurance of pardon and have trusted ourselves to it. David, after his great sin that he's confessing in Psalm 51, David said to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. That's what God's people need to hear, don't we? That the Lord has put away your sin. That when Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't stop there, but he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sins are covered. Weakness is pardoned. Um, We're forgiven. Peter knew the power of that forgiveness as well and preached that forgiveness with power. Think of those great words of Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as we examine ourselves and as we come to the table, do we acknowledge as we come that we come with nothing but our sins, nothing but our weakness, and find everything we need in our Savior? 
Do we come acknowledging that we trust in him and have put our faith and trust in him entirely for our salvation? The whole of our salvation is found in the blood of the, in the, blood of the cross offered by our Savior. Um, that's what we're testifying to as we come. So we're testifying that we are repentant sinners, we're testifying that we're redeemed sinners, and we're testifying that we're renewed sinners. So that's the next question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we renewed sinners? Do we desire to live that godly life more and more? Catechism hopefully talks about that too. All who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Is that who we are? Are we, redeemed, are we renewed sinners? Has the Spirit of Christ worked in our hearts such that we desire to live a godly life? That we desire to do those things that please the Lord? That we desire to have a stronger faith? That we desire to have a godly life? That we desire those things which we know are pleasing to our God? Um, That's what we're examining when we look at our lives. Because just as a true Christian can't exist without repentance and redemption... Uh, A true Christian doesn't exist without renewal. Whoever the Spirit is working on will put faith in Christ, will live more and more a life that's pleasing to God. And so is that our desire? Uh, Do we desire to live a Christian life? And it's important to notice what Scripture is asking us to think about. As Paul says, examine yourselves, and as we look at what Scripture has to say, Scripture does not say to us, how is your sanctification going? And if it's going well enough, you may come to the Lord's table. Right? That would be a pretty rough thing for us to have to do. And I imagine only a handful of us would ever come forward to the Lord's table. And for the handful that came, we'd be worried that they were too conceited in how they're doing. Right, we'd be too worried that they were coming as Pharisees, saying, "Thank God I'm not like all the other people that still have their, they still have their seats." Right, we would worry about that. Notice what the scriptures never tell us to do. It's it's not the question of how is your sanctification going. The question is, is your sanctification going? Do you desire to live a godly life? And it's only natural for Christians, especially as we approach that table that represents the one who died for us, who was willing to give up himself entirely for his people, to be filled with that sorrow that our lives aren't better. Remember Dr. Hal Jones telling us in seminary that something that should mark the people of God is a godly discontent. And what he meant by that was a discontent that we're not better. You know, that we we wish our faith was stronger. We wish our lives were better. And so the self-examination is not to say, Christian, how well are you doing? But the, the examination is saying, do you have that desire to live a righteous life before God that marks you as one who's been touched by the Holy Spirit's redeeming and renewing work? Because it's only someone whose mind has been enlightened by the Spirit, whose affections have been turned towards God, whose wills have been enlivened to seek the things that God seeks. It's only possible for someone who's been worked on by the Holy Spirit to look at their lives and say, I wish it was better. I wish my faith was stronger. 
And that's why we have to, whenever we come to these kinds of self-examination passages, whenever we come to the, to the Lord's Supper and read through the forms, we have to pay attention to those parts of the form that says, this is not telling strong people to come. This table is for weak people. Right? Healthy people don't have a need of a physician. Well-fed people don't have a need to be fed. It's hungry people who need to come. Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Who desire more and more to live a godly life. Because the Lord then comes to us and says, there's help for that. There's, there's food and drink that will nourish you to life eternal. It will strengthen your faith. It will help you in your Christian life. The question is not, how good is my sanctification going? The question is, am I a renewed sinner? That I do desire to have a stronger faith. That I do desire to live a godly life. Um, And am I trusting in Christ in those ways? And that's why we, we examine ourselves and we say, if you're sorry for your sin, if you put your trust in Christ, if you desire to live a life that's serving to him, you belong at the table. You belong at the table. And so the result of self-examination properly done ought to involve in eating. Right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Right? Self-examination is a good thing. It's a proper thing. Um, and it's meant to bring us to the table. It's meant to make us go through that important calculus. And maybe those of us who celebrate communion weekly have to be sure that we're doing this on a regular basis, that we're listening to the form that's read and we're undertaking that spiritual inventory. Um, Sometimes it's easier to do if you're doing it less frequently. Um, But when you're doing it every week, it it can become so habitual that we don't do that. And it's good for us to remember these things and to be reminded of these things. That's what we're called to do every time we come to the Lord's table, to examine ourselves. Um, And then to come and to eat. To be strengthened, nourished, and refreshed with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who should come to the Lord's table. People who can say those things about themselves. And so then who should not come to the Lord's table? Well, it's people for whom those things are not true. Um, Question 81 ends by saying, hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Um, Who are the unrepentant? The people who are not really sorry for their sins and don't really have that godly sorrow that leads to repentance without regret. Um, they feel sorry for themselves, maybe. It doesn't mean they don't feel any sorrow, um, but it means that they don't really feel sorry because God is offended. They don't have that sense that David had in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. You know, we, we sometimes want to say, I'm pretty sure you sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and a host of other people too. Um, is this David losing perspective? No, he's actually getting a better better perspective and saying, you know, the first and worst thing I did was sin against God. Um, and there are people who feel sorry for their sins because of the situation it lands them in, but not sorry because God's offended. They don't have that godly sorrow. It's like occasionally when I would get caught, it didn't happen real often, but when I would get caught doing something wrong as a kid, 
um, and I was going to be punished by my father and trying to avoid punishment. You know, you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he would say to me, you're sorry, you're sorry you got caught. You're not sorry you did it. Um, and although he never linked that to a spiritual lesson necessarily, I learned a spiritual lesson through it. That's really the difference between sorrow and godly sorrow. Um, that's the difference between Judas hanging himself and Peter being restored by the Lord. Peter was sorry because he knew he loved Jesus. And he knew the thing he did showed he didn't love him. And he grieved over that. Judas was just sorry he got caught. He felt sorry for himself. Those tears were not for God, those tears were for Judas. Um, And people who are not sorry for their sins, not sorry that they've offended a holy God, don't belong at the Lord's table. They've not come to know their sin. And they've not come to a godly sorrow on account of their sins. Um, The unrepentant don't belong at the Lord's table, neither do hypocrites. Um, Hypocrites are even worse. They know in their heart they don't belong. They know in their hearts they don't believe these things. They make a show of it. But it's not true. And God's word says to them, there's no, there's no place at the Lord's table for a hypocrite. There's no place at the Lord's table for one who does not believe and one who is not sorry for their sins. And that's why Paul's instruction to examine yourself is so penetrating because oftentimes unrepentant people and hypocritical people, they have other people fooled. Right, it's hard at the time to see what is the difference between Judas's tears and Peter's tears. Um, it's hard to know what, what's going on in the heart. Um, hypocrites are particularly slippery because they're making an external show. And that's why God puts before us this self-examination to say, you know who you are. Right? Even if you have other people fooled, you can't fool God. He knows the heart. And so you examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table. Um, Because if you come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, um, the Lord's Supper is something very different for you. It's the sternness of the warning that Paul gives. Right in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 31, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is what meant why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The people who come to the table of the Lord in a worthy manner find it to be spiritual, nutritious food to eternal life. Right? Calvin writing about this says, Communion is, for the Christian, spiritual food, grateful and delicious, as well as beneficial to the sincere worshiper of God, who in the participation of it experiences Christ to be their life, whom it stimulates to thanksgiving, whom it exhorts to mutual charity among themselves. It's wonderful food with wonderful benefits. But what is it to someone who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner? He says, it's not spiritually nutritious food, it's spiritually noxious. 
He says it's like a noxious poison found noxious rather than nutritious. This spiritual food, when it meets with a soul polluted by iniquity, only precipitates it into a more dreadful ruin. Not indeed from any fault in the food, but because unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Titus 1.15 um, in, a, in a simple way, he's saying it's sort of like a peanut to someone who has a peanut allergy. There's nothing wrong with a peanut. It's, it's good food. It's delicious food. But if you're allergic to it, you could eat it and it could kill you. Um, and so that's why we do what we do in fencing the table and teaching these things because of the importance of coming. If, if Christ is really present in his supper and we believe that he is, what, it, what, what are you doing if you come to the table without a mediator? If you come to the Lord without faith, if you come to the Lord without repentance, who can stand approaching God without a mediator? And that's why the Lord's Supper is not to be engaged in by people who are unbelieving and unrepentant. Um, because to them it's poison. It, it makes their condemnation all the worse. Um, and so people who know themselves to be like that are not to come. And if the church knows of someone who's like that, they are to bar them. Um, that, that's what we see in question 82 of the Catechism. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the institution of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. That's, in a sense, an application of Psalm 50, verses 16 and 17. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. Um, what right have you, God says. Um, and so if the church knows someone to be unbelieving and unrepentant, then we are, are to keep them from the table. They have no right to be there. It's not a very popular thing to do nowadays. Um, but we see it as a spiritual service to the wicked and unbelieving to keep them from doing something that will be dangerous for their souls. And so they should not come to the Lord's table who are unbelieving and unrepentant. Um, that doesn't mean there are also people who don't come to the Lord's table who we're not keeping away because we think they're unbelieving and unrepentant. There are other people who aren't coming to the Lord's table. We want to be clear that they're not barred from the table in that sense, nor are they considered unbelieving and unrepentant. We have children that we don't allow to come to the Lord's table. So we always want to make it clear. Sometimes we bar people because they're unbelieving and unrepentant. Sometimes we don't admit people to the Lord's table because of the condition that they're in apart from those two categories. And I think it's important to distinguish that because... In my experience as elders and ministers trying to fence the Lord's table in an appropriate manner, you oftentimes will run into people that say, well, what gives you the right to keep me away? Um, I thought I should have been admitted there. Or there are people who think their children should be admitted to the Lord's table without a public profession of faith. And how do we think about those things? Well, why don't we admit children to the, catech to, to the, to the Lord's table? Um, well, because of what we've already said, right? You need to be able, in coming to the Lord's table, 
to say certain things. That you understand your sin, you understand your salvation, and you desire to live a godly life. Little children, you can't do that. Uh, Paul also says they need to be able to discern the body and blood of Christ. They need to be able to understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Um, some young children can't, can't do that. And some people have asked, well, why do we baptize children who don't know what's happening, but we won't admit them to the Lord's table? And they think that that makes a lot of sense. But um, as one Reformed theologian put, pointed out, in baptism, a person appears in a completely passive way. He or she receives something. In the Lord's Supper, in contrast, he comes actively, eating. He does something. He takes, he eats, he drinks. He does it in remembrance of Christ. It is required of those who come to the Lord's Supper that they discern the body of the Lord and examine themselves. And little children cannot do that. And so again, we want to make sure that they don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner, that they come understanding. Um, and then we don't just wag our fingers at them and say, not for you. Um, then we try to do that work of teaching them. Teaching them what it is that we're sinners, what it is that Christ saved us, what it is to live a life of service to him and what the Lord's Supper represents. And when they come to an age of discernment that they know these things, it's different for every child, but parents and the church, we all encourage our kids to learn these things and to come, uh, to come to the table and to eat. But those are the questions we're trying to ask. Um, and if your parent's trying to help your children, those are the questions that the scriptures helpfully say we need to be able to answer. Do we understand our sin? Do we understand our Savior? Do we desire to live a godly life? And do we understand the sacrament? Um, and we should encourage our children to continue to learn so they can do those things. And then there's one more class of people that we don't admit to the Lord's table that I think is worth talking about. Um, adult believers who are not members of any church. Sometimes you run into people who say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a member of a church, um, so I should be able to come to the Lord's table. And we have to say, no, you have to be a member of a church. There's no such thing as being an independent operator Christian. Um, it's a communion of the saints, and that's what Paul is, is teaching us in 1 Corinthians as well, right? It's not just a communion with the Lord, where you have to have your mind and heart right before him to rightly eat of the supper. But Paul's also castigating the Corinthians because they don't eat and drink the Lord's Supper in a way that testifies to the community and the communion of the saints that the believers have with one another. Right? Some of you have nothing to eat and drink. Some of you are partying, treating it like a pagan feast. Some of you are getting drunk. Some of you have nothing. Whatever you're doing, this, there's no communion in it. There's no communion of the saints in it, right? It, it would be, a, it would be a, an ugly thing in the church if, if when I was at the Lord's table and I said, you know, come forward with a quiet conscience and full assurance of faith. If everybody ran up here as quickly as possible, you're first in line, and you're shoving people out of the way, right? It would be a monstrous thing to see. There's no communion in that. Um, and what communion represents is that we also have a communion of faith amongst one another, there's not just a communion with the Lord, there's a communion with the other, other God's people. And that's what God commands us, to be in communion uh, with one another. Because that's what's testified to in the Lord's Supper as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. 
for we all partake of the one bread. And so we always ask that question, are you part of a body? Are you part of a body, a local body, where you suffer when the body suffers, where you rejoice when the body rejoices, that you're part of a fellowship God has intended us to be part of as a people of God? Um, And until that happens, we have to say, you can't come into communion with this local body if you're not in communion with any local body. Um, That's what God's word testifies to us. So these things are important because God has given us these things to be used for our benefit, for our spiritual welfare. Um, And so we want to understand what's represented to us in in blood of Christ by this sacrament and to be able to answer those questions. And then to be able to come to the table without fear. Um, the thing God has given us this sacrament for is so that we might be comforted. So that we might be strengthened. So we might be encouraged in our faith. Um, and doing these important things in our lives will help us be encouraged. Are you a sinner? We all are. Are you sorry for your sins? Do you believe that your Savior has done enough to pardon your iniquity and cover your remaining weakness? Do you desire to live a godly life? Then the supper is for you. And through this supper, the Lord will nourish your soul unto everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us always to, as we approach your table, do it in a worthy manner that we would rightly examine ourselves for those things your word calls us to see, that we would acknowledge that we are sinners, that we would know our sin and sorrow over it because it's an offense before you, a holy God. And that we would not be bowed down by grief over our sin, but might recognize also that we have a Savior who loved us enough to come into the world and to suffer for our sins, who was wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities, that we might be made whole. We pray, Lord, that we would desire to live a life that's in service to you and that we would continue to come to your table to be strengthened in our communion with Christ and in our communion with one another. Might we do these things rightly so we would testify to you and to ourselves that we truly understand what it is to be in fellowship with Christ, what it is to remember his death, and what it is to anticipate with joy and longing for the day of his appearing. So help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.